what happens when you mix religion with sex, with jealousy, with lies. You get the perfect combination that not only leads to murder, but one of the most highly followed criminal trials in the history of the United States. It was a case and a story that instantly became a media sensation. Millions tuned in daily to watch live footage of the trial, the testimonies, and the stories. This week, we cover the story of Jody Ann Arias and the murder of Travis Victor Alexander. Welcome to Forensic Tales. As always, I'm your host, Courtney. Each Monday, we release a new episode that discusses real, bone-chilling true crime stories and how forensic science has been used in the case. Some cases have been solved through cutting-edge forensic techniques, while other cases have been left sitting on the shelf collecting dust in the cold case division, just waiting to be solved by forensic science. If you love the show, please take a moment, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Also, if one episode a week is just not enough to satisfy your true crime obsession, you can now access bonus episodes and be one of the first people to listen to new episodes on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Patreon is also where you can go to simply support the show. Every little bit helps, and I couldn't do this without you. Now, let's get to our story. Before I actually get into what happened here in this case, I want to give you a little background on who Jody and Travis are that you may not even remember or maybe you didn't even know about. So Jody was born Jody Ann Arias on July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, California, a place known as, quote, the salad bowl of the world. And she grew up in a fairly mixed household. She had an older half-sister, a younger sister, and two younger brothers. And at a really young age, Jody discovered a passion for photography. And as a young kid, she was always taking pictures, and she really had an eye for photography as young as about 10 years old. So Jody attended Eureka Union High School for a couple years, but she didn't actually finish high school. She dropped out of school when she was only in the 11th grade, and she took a job working as a server at Ventura and Spa in the city of Carmel in the fall of 2001. So while working as a server, she studied to get her GED, and that's where she met her former boyfriend, Daryl Brewer. So Daryl was actually the restaurant's food and beverage manager where Jody was working at the time, and the two started dating officially in 2003. So things actually got pretty serious between Jody and her new boyfriend, Daryl. They bought a house together in the city of Palm Desert, and it wasn't exactly cheap either. Um, The reports that I found were that they were spending about $2,800 each on the mortgage payment. 
But Jody's relationship with Daryl started to fizzle out. She was behind on her financial obligations, and by about mid-2006, they actually broke up. But according to Daryl, the two still remained pretty good friends even after the breakup. In February 2006, Jody started working for prepaid legal services, while she also still worked part-time as a server at the restaurant. Now, prepaid legal services is basically a company that allows their clients to purchase legal plans in advance to cover the costs of attorneys. And the company now is no longer known as prepaid legal services. It's actually now known as Legal Shield. So a few months later, in September 2006, Jody meets Travis Alexander, who was a speaker at the company's conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. Travis Alexander worked both as a salesman and a motivational speaker for prepaid legal services. He was a couple years older than Jody and was born on July 28, 1977 in Riverside. And he grew up in a very Mormon household with seven other siblings. And at the age of just 11, Travis and his seven other siblings moved into his grandparents' house after his father had passed away. So after Travis's speech at the Las Vegas conference in September 2006, Jody and Travis seemed to really hit it off with each other. And even though Travis was Mormon and Jody certainly wasn't, the two of them developed a sexual relationship within the first week of meeting, which is certainly frowned upon in the Mormon church. Because not only is Travis with someone who is certainly not connected to the Mormon church, but they're also involved in a sexual relationship out of marriage. But by all accounts, this didn't seem to stop Travis or Jody, and the two of them developed a nearly instant long-distance relationship. When Jody and Travis weren't traveling together, the two were constantly emailing and calling each other. And just two months after meeting each other, in November 2006, Jody was baptized in the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, where Travis was a member, which could essentially be a huge step for Jody to become much closer to Travis, who was a devout Mormon himself. So Jody moved from California to Mesa, Arizona to be even closer to Travis in February 2007, but she wasn't able to stay in Arizona for very long and support herself out there, so she ended up moving back to California to live with her grandparents after just about a month in Arizona. So Travis and Jody carried on an on-and-off-again long-distance relationship with each other over the next year and a half. The two traveled back and forth between Arizona and California to stay with each other, and by all accounts, the two carried on a sexual relationship with each other. But Travis's friends really didn't like Jody at all. 
His friends thought that she was possessive over Travis. She was crazy. And just that their relationship was was just toxic right from the very beginning. Travis's friends were right to be concerned about Jody's behavior and their relationship. Travis and Jody Arias were in a very on-and-off-again relationship with each other that was a relationship probably more off than it was on. And during their on-and-off-again relationship, Travis was out there dating other girls, girls that he could see himself marrying someday, probably something that he didn't really see in Jody. But even though Travis and Jody continued their sexual relationship with each other over those months, he really didn't see things going long term with her. And when Travis started dating another girl, Jody lost it. She was sending Travis and his new girlfriend threatening emails. At one point, Travis thought she might be stalking him, but Despite all of this crazy behavior by Jody, Travis continued talking and he continued sleeping with her. And the two were even seen traveling together in March 2008. And it just seemed like Travis just couldn't stay away from Jody Arias. Around this time in early 2008, Travis had told some of his friends that he planned to take Jody with him on a work trip to Cancun, Mexico. And it seemed like Travis wanted to bring Jody as his guest because things were going okay between them at the time. But by April of that same year, that all seemed to change. He suspected that she was hacking into his Facebook account and reading his messages. So at this point, he told his friends that he was done with her and that he was planning to bring another girl with him to Mexico. So on May 28th, 2008, while Jody was living with her grandparents, the house was burglarized. So sometime during the night, an intruder broke into the house and stole several items, including a 25 caliber automatic Colt pistol, about $30 in cash, a small stereo, and a DVD player. And at the time, the police couldn't figure out who broke into the home or even why. A couple days after the break-in at Jody's grandparents' house in California, Jody and Travis seemed to be talking to each other once again because Jody called Travis four times between the hours of 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. on June 2nd. Now, Travis doesn't answer any of these phone calls from Jody. My guess is that it's probably it's the middle of the night and I certainly wouldn't answer my phone between 1 and 3 a.m. But even though Jody couldn't get a hold of Travis, she continues to call him two more times after 3 o'clock in the morning, by which point she finally gets a hold of him. So on the first call between Jody and Travis that morning, they talk for 18 minutes. And on the second phone call, they talk for 41 minutes. Finally, at 4.03 a.m., Jody calls Travis one more time, but this time they only talk for 2 minutes and 48 seconds, so it's a very quick phone call. 
So they talk on the phone for about an hour between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m. on June 2nd. So later that morning, Jody left her grandparents' house to set out on a road trip to Utah to see her coworker and friend Ryan Burns. Shortly after leaving the house, she stopped by a Shell food mart in Wairika where she purchased gasoline. And around 8 a.m. that morning, Jody rented a car from a budget runner car in Redding, California. She told the budget company that she would be returning the car back to Redding. But before Jody heads out to Utah, she makes a stop in Mesa, Arizona, where Travis lives. Jody and Travis spend the day together on June 4th. And after seeing Travis on the 4th, she heads to the city of West Jordan, Utah to visit Ryan Burns. Now, Jody and Ryan Burns have a romantic thing going on, and the two are going to attend some business conferences together, and as they're spending some time together, Ryan does notice that Jody has changed her hair color. The last time that she was with Ryan, he remembers her having this blonde hair, and now she's a brunette. And he doesn't just notice that she's made a dramatic change to her hair. He also notices that she's got some pretty bad cuts on both of her hands. But he doesn't ask her anything about the hair change or the cuts. The two of them just seem to have a really good time together. So after a couple days in Utah, Jody makes her way back home to Northern California, and on her way back home, she calls Travis over and over again, and she leaves him several voicemails, but she can't get a hold of him. So she returned the car back to the rental company after putting over 2,800 miles on it, and both floor mats to the rental car were missing. By June 7th, friends of Travis are starting to become a little bit concerned about their friend. No one has heard from Travis in a few days, and he's already missed an important company conference call, which just isn't like Travis. So on June 7th, a couple of his friends head over to his house on East Queensboro Avenue in Mesa, Arizona, to basically see what's up with him. According to Travis's roommate, he hasn't seen or heard from Travis in a couple days, but he just assumed he might be working out of town. It wasn't uncommon for Travis to travel with his job at prepaid legal services. So the roommate provides Travis's friends a key to the master bedroom where Travis stayed, and Travis's friends could have never been prepared for what they would discover inside the bedroom. Inside the master bedroom, Travis's friends discovered a complete blood bath. They follow the pools of blood down the bedroom hallway until they reach the master bathroom. And right there in the bathroom, they find the body of Travis Alexander. He's discovered naked and slumped over in the shower. Travis's friends immediately call 911, and when police arrive at the house, it is obvious that Travis has been dead for several days, 
because his body showed signs of pretty advanced decomposition. And there was a ton of blood at the scene. The walls were covered in it. The sink was full of blood. The floors had smears all over it. Just everything was coated in blood. Travis's autopsy revealed extremely disturbing details about his murder. Travis had been stabbed between 27 and 29 times. His throat had been slit from ear to ear, and he had a single gunshot wound to his head. Now, you don't have to be a medical examiner to know that this is a rage killing. Whoever did this to Travis didn't just want to kill him. They wanted to kill him 10 times over. Any one of the injuries found on Travis's body would have killed him. You name it, the stab wounds, the slitting of the throat from ear to ear, the single gunshot wound, any one of these injuries would have instantly killed Travis. The search of Travis's home proved to be really beneficial to investigators who wanted to find out who would do this. Crime scene technicians recovered a .25 caliber shell casing on the bathroom floor right next to where Travis's body was found. And inside the bathroom, they also found hair and a palm print in blood right near the entrance to the bathroom hall. Investigators also found a digital camera inside of the washing machine in the downstairs laundry room. So the digital camera had obviously been through the wash cycle, most likely in an attempt to destroy it, because I don't know any other reason why you would put a digital camera in a washing machine. And it was an attempt to destroy any possible pictures that might be on the digital camera. So as soon as Travis's body was discovered, his friends were practically begging the police to look into Jody Arias. One of Travis's friends told the Huffington Post in an interview, quote, Jody was totally obsessed with him. She wouldn't let him go. Whenever he would try to sever all ties, she would threaten to kill herself, end quote. So sure, she was a crazy ex-girlfriend, right? But crazy ex-girlfriends don't usually kill their exes. So after Travis's murder, Jody appeared to be extremely distraught over his death. She posted like a photo album to her MySpace account, you know, back when we all had MySpace accounts, that had a bunch of photos of Travis and she titled it In Loving Memory of Travis really just looking like a girl who is just devastated over his death. Now, feeling the pressure from Travis's friends, Jody voluntarily walked into the Mesa Police Department on June 17th, which is about one week after the murder. And she voluntarily provided her fingerprints, and she even provided a saliva sample for DNA testing. And during the interview with police, Jody had said that the last time she saw Travis was back in April, which if you're keeping track, April is nearly two months prior to the murder. So she's saying here that there's basically no way that she could have done this. 
So while the police wait for Jody's DNA test to come back from the lab, investigators were able to recover the images on Travis's digital camera that was found inside of his washing machine. And what they discovered on that digital camera was absolutely shocking. On the digital camera, police found image after image of Jody and Travis together on June 4th. Now, these aren't just regular images. I mean, these are like X-rated pictures together. And most of the images are time-stamped around 1.40 p.m. But then there was one last image at 5.29 p.m. that evening of Travis taking a shower. And police believe that this would be the last picture of him alive. The next set of photos on the digital camera were actually deleted images of an individual who was described to be bleeding profusely. Now, you can't tell who the person is because the images are really dark and grainy. They look like maybe the camera was dropped at one point and the photos were maybe taken by accident. But the most important piece of evidence gained from the digital camera was that it proved that Jody lied about the last time that she saw Travis. The pictures on the camera had actually proved that Jody was with Travis in Mesa, Arizona on the very day that he was last seen or heard from. A few weeks later, investigators received the DNA test results back from the lab. And the test revealed that the hair and palm print found inside Travis's bathroom belonged to Jody. In fact, all the blood found inside the bathroom was a mixture of Jody and Travis's blood. The same exact day police got the DNA test results back, Jody Arias attended Travis's memorial service. Exactly one month after Travis Alexander was found murdered, Jody Arias was arrested for the murder on July 9th, 2008, the same day that she celebrated her 29th birthday. And she was charged with first-degree murder after a grand jury in Maricopa County, Arizona, indicted her. So police in California arrested her at her grandparents' house later that same day, and she was extradited back to Arizona because that's where the murder occurred about two months later on September 5th. And Jody was assigned a public defender in the case, and she pled not guilty on September 11th, 2008. And the very next day, Jody appeared in a jailhouse interview with the Arizona Republic. And in the interview, she basically denied having any involvement in Travis's murder. And she appeared surprisingly cool, calm, and collected in the interview. And she was quoted as saying, God knows I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with the murder. I would never hurt him. He was my friend. While in custody, Jody provided a number of different stories about her involvement in the murder, and she was talking to pretty much anyone in the media that would even listen to her. At first, she told police that she was never in Mesa the day that Travis was killed. 
And then she changed her story during an interview with Inside Edition to say that she was with Travis the day of the murder. But the two people broke into the house, they attacked her, and they killed Travis. And she went into even more details about this home invasion story a few days later on 48 Hours. So during this interview with 48 Hours, Jody described the intruders as being a male and a female dressed in all black, and they were armed with a knife and a gun. She said that the man pointed the gun right to her face, pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. Then, according to Jody, she ran out of the house, but she never called the police about the attack. She basically ran out of the house and left Travis behind. But then her story changed yet again from the home invasion one. And this time, she finally admitted to killing Travis, but she said that she did it out of self-defense that she was a victim of domestic violence and she had to kill him or he would have killed her. She said that while she was with Travis, she accidentally dropped his digital camera and he became so angry with her that she was basically forced to kill him in self-defense. So for a brief period during all of this, Jody was granted the ability to represent herself. And during this time, she had asked the court to basically bring into evidence some letters that Travis had supposedly written to her sometime in the past. And these letters claimed basically that he was a pedophile, that he had a thing for young girls and young boys. But the court ultimately denied these letters because the court believed that there was enough evidence to suggest that the letters had been forged. And once the letters were denied by the court, Jody actually requested that the public defenders be reappointed to represent her before going into trial because she was, quote, in over her head, which is probably true. So the Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office announced that they would be seeking the death penalty against Jody Arias. So because of that, a death penalty qualified defense attorney, Jennifer Wilmot, hope I'm saying that correctly, was assigned to represent her. And on December 10th, 2012, jury selection began in the trial against Jody Arias. It took the court 10 days to finally get their jury of 12 jurors and six alternates from a pool of over 350 potential jurors. And that's because Jody's defense team felt like the prosecutors in the case were intentionally excluding women and African Americans from the jury, which I guess is a set of individuals that the defense team felt like might side with Jody. But regardless, the jurors were finally set and the trial officially got started. So in his opening statement, Prosecutor Juan Martinez reminded the jury that any one of Travis's injuries alone would have killed him. Remember the stabbing, the gunshot wound, or the slitting of his throat? But Jody's defense team was quick to counter by arguing that 
Jody had no choice but to kill Travis after he became so enraged, as they put it, with her dropping his digital camera. Now, during the murder trial, it was revealed that it took the forensics team over three full days to completely go through all of the forensic evidence at the crime scene. And what really didn't look too good for Jody, amongst other things, was just the amount of blood everywhere at the scene. The prosecution really painted this picture that a crime scene with that much blood just doesn't fit with someone who is simply trying to defend themselves. And the medical examiner, Dr. Kevin Horn, even testified that Travis had a significant amount of defensive wounds, both to his fingers and on his palms, which aren't wounds that are consistent with a self-defense argument. We see defensive wounds in someone, right, that is obviously trying to defend themselves against someone. They aren't typically seen in someone who is the aggressor. Now, they were arguing, like, if Travis was trying to kill Jody, why were there only injuries that he had to his body were defensive wounds? And remember how Jody's friend, Ryan Burns, said that Jody had cuts on her hands when she visited him in Utah. And prosecutors argued that the cuts were from the knife slipping in her hand from stabbing Travis over 25 times, which I know that part's kind of gruesome, but we see that a lot with with people that are stabbed 10, 15, 20 times, like in this case, it gets very bloody. It gets very messy. And because stabbing is so intimate and it's so personal, it's so close to the victim that when you're stabbing that many times, it's we see it a lot. We see it where the perpetrator, when they're stabbing and they're stabbing and there's all this blood that the knife slips and it's it's very common that they end up with cuts on their hands. But Jody said that the cuts on her hands were actually from working at a Margaritaville restaurant in Eureka, California, which it turns out that there is no such restaurant there. There never has been. So she's lying about how she got the cuts on her hand. So the state also called a number of character witnesses that testified about how nice Travis was. His fellow church members testified that they felt safe around him, that he wasn't the type of guy to be abusive or to be violent. And at trial, no one even recalled seeing Travis with a temper or even being mad. So if you remember that the digital camera that was found in Travis's washing machine contained um, what I described as X-rated photos, um, all of those X-rated photos of Travis and Jody together that day were shown to the jury. And the jury listened to some very graphic phone conversations between them. The sex life between Jody and Travis really became a focus during the trial, which um, when you think about it, 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 no one probably wants to sit through that, right? You've got Jody's family there. You've got Travis's as the victim. His family's there. Everyone's having to basically listen to some very graphic phone conversations. They're all being shown those X-rated photos on the digital camera. Um, I just can't imagine how just um, uncomfortable that must have been for everybody. And 
All of this was kind of to suggest that if Jody was being abused by this guy, you couldn't tell by their conversations or their interactions. And by the way here, it was Jody herself who was recording these phone conversations um, by all accounts without Travis knowing. So she was secretly recording them. And many speculated here that she was recording them because it was going to be used as some sort of ammo against him, maybe to his Mormon peers or something like that later on down the road. Which, hey, I I don't know if I 100% agree with because who knows what was happening outside of these phone calls between Travis and Jody. But but anyway, I digress. So it also was really bad for Jody that Travis was shot with a 25 caliber gun, which was the same type of gun that was reported stolen from her grandparents' house just a few days before the murder happened. And the prosecution really argued that Jody staged the break-in, that she took the gun, and that she brought it with her to Arizona to see Travis, which if you're going to spend some time with your long-distance boyfriend, why are you bringing a 25 caliber handgun with you? So much to everyone's surprise, Jody actually took the stand in her own defense, probably against the wishes of her attorneys. I know I probably wouldn't want to put her up there. And she was on the stand for a total of 18 days, which is practically unheard of in a criminal trial. And while on the stand, she stuck to her testimony that she was abused by her own parents as a kid and that Travis was physically and emotionally abusive towards her and that she was forced to kill him that day out of self-defense for dropping his digital camera. And she still claimed that Travis had a thing for little boys and little girls. And she was trying to help him with that during this time. But from everything that I could find and everything that I've watched on this, there there was no evidence of that ever on Travis's computer or anything like that to suggest that he actually did have this thing for, for kids. So her defense team had a psychologist take the stand to argue that Jody may have been suffering from an acute stress disorder at the time of the murder, which basically sent her body into a fight or flight mode in order to defend herself. But the prosecution had their own psychologist testify that Jody never showed signs of PTSD or even an acute stress disorder and that there was no evidence that Travis was ever abusive towards her in the first place. There was also talk at the trial as to the fact that Jody had purchased a five-gallon gas can from a Walmart in Salinas, California, right before she headed out towards Mesa, Arizona, which the prosecution argued that it showed premeditation to the murder because she wanted to avoid having to stop at gas stations and might possibly get caught seen on camera on her way out to Mesa, Arizona. And at the end of it all, Jody's defense team argued that how could there be premeditation when she acted in self-defense and that she truly loved Travis and that she would never do anything intentionally to hurt him. They said that if Jody was to be guilty, then it should be nothing more than manslaughter. 
And then the case was in the hands of the jury to decide Jody's fate, which it didn't take long for them because it only took about 15 hours of deliberating when they found Jody Arias guilty of first degree murder. And after the guilty verdict, the prosecution pushed forward in pursuing the death penalty against her. At the sentencing hearing, the prosecution orchestrated a pretty dramatic plan that basically involved everyone taking a two minutes of silence to symbolize exactly how long it took Jody to kill Travis that day. And again, after all the testimony at the sentencing hearing, it only took the jury three hours to decide that she was, in fact, eligible for the death penalty. So the penalty phase to decide whether or not they were going to sentence Jody to death began on May 16th, 2013. And a few members of Travis's family made some pretty powerful victim impact statements. If you've watched any part of the trial or you saw this um, this part of it, hearing Travis's family, especially his siblings, I remember his sister was just, it, it's so devastating to, to hear how loved Travis was and how much he's going to be missed by his family. And... While Jody was still pleading to be sentenced to life in prison and she was trying to spare her life and she even came to the hearing holding a t-shirt that read survivor across the middle of it, which was telling the jury that she was selling them to raise money for domestic violence victims, which Certainly when I saw her bring the t-shirt with this, the survivor written on it, I don't think that did Jody Arias any amount um, of relief here. I think that probably was even worse for her to do. But in this case, the jury came back hung on the decision for death. They just couldn't decide. And over a year went by before Jody's sentencing retrial began on October 21st, 2014, where much of the same testimony by the prosecution and defense were presented. And once again, the jury was deadlocked on a decision. Now, this jury deliberated for over 26 hours over the course of five days and were deadlocked 11 to 1 in favor of the death penalty. So that means that just one single person was holding out. Now, after the second mistrial at the sentencing, it basically went into the judge's hands to decide Jody's sentence. It was either life with no parole or life with the possibility of parole after 25 some odd years. So the judge ended up sentencing her to life in prison without the possibility of parole on April 13th, 2015. So Jody Arias will spend the rest of her life behind bars. Jody Aris's trial cost around $3 million, which is just insane if you think about it. And on top of that, she was actually ordered to pay restitution to Travis's siblings for more than $32,000, which doesn't sound like they will probably even see a dime of that restitution money based on the fact that she's going to be locked up. 
And because this case was highly sensationalized in the media, according to her attorney, Jody has received countless death threats over the years. And she's quite possibly one of the most hated women in the country. The whole Jody Arias murder trial has been described by the Associated Press and many other news outlets as being, quote, a circus and just a runaway train. We saw millions tune in to watch live courtroom footage that went into the nitty gritty of Travis and Jody's relationship. The sex, the lies, the obsession, it just made for perfect television. I mean, except for the fact that, of course, it wasn't just television. It was a real-life murder trial. So who knows how much of the media sensation fed into the overall trial. Who knows how it fed into the jury's decision. But it's certainly um, something that has made the case highly, highly remembered and highly sensationalized. So... Jody is currently serving her life sentence in an Arizona state prison, and because she is not eligible for parole, it's most likely that she's going to die in prison. She's going to spend her life in there. And keep in mind, she was only in her 20s when she met Travis Alexander. So even now, all of these years, years later, Jody is only 39 years old, and she's going to spend way more time in prison than she ever did on the outside. And I think one of Jody's biggest problems right from the very beginning were her inconsistencies in her stories and her lies. She told so many different stories about what happened that day. She wasn't there. She was, but then two people broke into the house and attacked them. And then, no, no one broke in. She killed Travis out of self-defense. The lies and the inconsistencies just didn't do Jody Arias any justice here. Now, the forensic evidence only placed two people inside of Travis's bedroom that day. Travis himself and Jody. The blood found everywhere in the room was a mixture of Travis's and Jody's blood. And when it came down to the self-defense claim, I just don't think the jury believed her. Besides the fact that she had already lied through her teeth for months prior to trial, the story of Travis being some pedophile and some domestic abuser just didn't make any sense to anyone who really knew him. Before Jody came along, no one ever accused him of being violent or this terrible pedophile or this terrible person. It just didn't make any sense. And I think the jury in this case knew it, and they certainly got this one right. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows so you don't miss an episode. For a small monthly contribution, you can get access to bonus content and early access to new episodes. Or if you just want to support my show, please head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash forensic tales. 
Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible from our Patreon producers, Tony Ariola and Nicole Leasing. If you'd like to become a producer of the show and find out how you can become involved, head over to our Patreon page or email me directly at Courtney at ForensicTales.com. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the show. Please join me next week. We release a new episode every Monday to satisfy your true crime obsession. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.